keep going with the mic. Handheld, old school. All right, so uh, just like our, our, you know, we're going back to the old ways of 84. <laughs> Got the handheld mic, back in time. I think handhelds are kind of in style now, so maybe I'm like, cool, I don't know, using this. So hey, I, I have a couple of announcements as we begin. First off, uh, I want to let you know, we, we have a, uh, a specific ministry in our church called our, our Community Initiative. It's overseen by Johnny Moore, and he's been working with a number of the local schools in our area and trying to find different ways in which we can partner with the schools and, and help uh, come uh, offer, offer different things that will you know, help sustain them and, and that they can utilize for their uh, ministry there in the schools. We, we are partnered with Mary Casey Black Elementary specifically and also for Edna Hill Middle School. And what we've done is we've talked with them and we know that they need books and we've basically come up with a curated books or curated list of books of books that we're like, yeah, we'll buy these for you. These are good books that we would love your kids to read. And so uh, we have a, a list of those books where we can actually purchase them for these students. And if you check the, the resource email that goes out every week, there's a link there where you can actually see that list there and, and donate in that way. Another important announcement is the fact that we have our membership and baptism class starting up next week. Uh, right now we're in the middle of a church series trying to understand the importance of the church, the role of every single member of the church, and it's, it would be a great time, I think, to join our membership class to learn more about Golden Hills and how you can partner with our church and be a, a, an active member here. Uh, registration is again during, uh, or it's online and you can, you can find registration in that email that goes out weekly. Uh, another important announcement is related to our Harvest Carnival. So our Harvest Carnival is uh, an annual thing that we've been doing for years, um, years and years. Uh, it's probably in one of those really old pamphlets that we were looking at. Um, we annually, have, we offer something for the community on October 31st, which is Reformation Day. It's also Halloween, so ha however you wanna look at that. But it's basically an alternative where we're trying to, to offer something for our community, something for the children in our community, and so, Last year we did something unique because of COVID and all the restrictions and we had a, a bunch of cars out in our parking lot and we kind of had this assembly line of cars going through and you could reach out your window and grab candy. We're gonna try to combine what we did last, last year with what we've historically done. So we're gonna do that trunk or treat idea where cars are gonna decorate uh, their, their, or you know, owners of cars are gonna decorate their cars, gonna have candy in the cars, gonna have games, some of the cars will host games, and, and our kids will be able to walk through the parking lot, pick up candy, play games. We'll also have a bunch of bounce, bounce houses uh, out on Lone Tree, uh, right in the grassy area over there. We'll have um, uh, food trucks, so lots of candy, lots of food, lots of fun, all of this. Uh, so here's, here's how you can help. We need people to partner with us in, in offering cars and helping us by decorating your cars and, and handing out candy, doing games, things like that. We can also use help uh, right out in the, in the plaza. We have a, a couple of trash cans. They're, they're actually trash cans, but we don't want you to put trash in them. We want you to put candy in them because we need a lot of candy like uh, probably 20, 40, 50, I don't know, garbage cans full of candy. So if you would, come by. Those will be out here uh, in the plaza every week until the event takes place. So there's already a couple of bags in there, and we could use a lot more. That would be a great way for you to partner with us. Okay. We're good? All right. So with that said, this morning, as Phil pointed out, our focus is on the discipling church. Right? The church is called to disciple. And so this morning, as we're going through this church series, that's what we are going to focus on uh, today. Now, I, I grew up in Florida near the beach. I spent a lot of time at the beach as a kid. And I've, since being here, something I've learned, uh, it, you know, this isn't all that profound, but I have learned that the beaches here in Northern California are quite a bit different than the beaches I grew up going to in Florida. Um, here, you have like cold air 
this, you know, it's weird. It's like windy and cold. I'm not used to that. I grew up in, again, South Florida, not even like North Florida. So it was always warm at the beach. The water was always warm at the beach. Here, if you're gonna get into the, to the water, you need like a wetsuit and like not just any wetsuit, like a really thick one. Um, another way in which it's different is here we have different sea life. You have seals here. We don't have seals in Florida. You have big fish that eat seals, you know, dressed in these gray suits. We don't have sharks that big in Florida. We have sharks, just not quite that big, but not quite as scary. Um, another thing that we had in Florida were, were sea turtles. And uh, sea turtles, that, that's something I miss. Because they, they were these big, ancient-looking, you know, shelled creatures that will crawl out of the water uh, at night. And if it's the right season, you can actually go to the beach with, like, a flashlight and you can, you know, try to spot sea turtles on the beach. You can watch them dig nests and lay their eggs. Uh, and sometimes, you know, you'll, you'll see them going back out into the water, which is kind of weird, which is part of the point that I wanted to bring up here, is the fact that the, the mother sea turtle doesn't take care of her eggs. <laughs> It's kind of like a, an aspect of the fall that we see in our creation. Goes onto the beach, lays a nest, or creates a nest, lays the eggs, and then just dips. All right, Junior, figure it out. You know, go for it. And so, again, if you're out at the beach at the right time, you're in the right place at the right time, and you got your flashlight, sometimes you can actually see the sea turtles coming out of their eggs and, like, crawling towards the ocean. And now is where things kind of get ugly because you might be there watching the sea turtle crawl across the sand and then see a seagull swoop in and just snatch it off the, the sand. And you're like, oh, I didn't see that coming. Um, yeah, it's a, it's a scary world for a baby sea turtle. If they make it to the water, many of them will never make it past the shore break. If they make it past the shore break, many of them will just be eaten by sea creatures. If somehow they don't get eaten by sea creatures, many of them will not find enough food to survive. SeaTurtles.org, which is actually a website, uh, it, it estimates that one in a thousand hatchlings will actually survive. It's, I, I'm sorry, I, I heard like the moans, right? Some, some, of you, some of you have sensitive hearts and you're like, I thought I came to church to be encouraged. Um, <laughs> That's the kind of stat that sort of ruins your day. So I, I apologize for introducing you to the realities of uh, the animal kingdom. That's just the way it is. But compare that with a lion cub. A lion cub, the, a pride of lions. You have a totally different story. You will not find a lioness who will leave her cub to fend for itself. It's not gonna happen. There's this pack mentality where they want to see the cubs grow up into strong hunters capable of ruling over an open plain. So what does all this have to do with discipling? Notice the contrast between these two animals, right? The, the sea turtle and the lion. This contrast actually shows us what we ought not and what we ought to pursue in our own discipleship relationships. The church is not in the business of leaving disciples to face the elements on their own. That's not the way we approach our discipleship. Because we need to be assured that our odds, if, if we were to try to face reality on our own without the help of the church, we would have the same odds, if not worse, than those little hatchlings coming out of their shells on the beach our odds wouldn't be great, which is why the church takes ownership of its people. We're all in this together. We're working on this together. That's why we are committed to discipleship, which is doing spiritual good to others for God's glory and for their good. That's our pursuit as a church. Like a pride of lions, we protect one another. We look out for the good of one another. And we raise up our young in hopes that they will turn into competent leaders who can then in turn help sustain the church. That is our goal this morning is to understand how the discipling church functions and fosters its own. So again, we're in the midst of this series on the church. And so as we're, as we're starting this uh, morning, I want us to go to Matthew 28. 
Because in Matthew 28, we have, uh, we've, we've referenced it a couple of times already during this series. In Matthew 28, which won't be our text for the rest of the morning, I just want us to see how it basically summarizes everywhere we've been so far. It, it, it's a great uh, passage to look at, to understand the role of the church. And we see uh, a lot of what we've already discussed during this series here in these couple of verses. So Matthew 28, verses 18 to 20, follow along with me if you have your Bibles. Here's what it says. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. There is so much that we can talk about from these verses, but for the purposes uh, of this morning, all I wanna do is just focus on how this text uh, has shaped where we have been so far and, and where we've come to this morning. Think about that very first phrase, go and make disciples of all nations. That's directly related to what we heard from Justin Hutz a couple of weeks ago. The church has a mission. The people of God have a purpose to intentionally preach the gospel wherever we happen to be. The church finds its identity and its purpose in making disciples throughout the world. So this phrase, uh, the next phrase that I wanna point out, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and, the, and of the Holy Spirit. This is directly related to what we saw last week. Remember, last week we, we sought to understand what it means to be a truly converted disciple of Jesus. And baptism symbolizes conversion, right? Baptism is an outward representation of what has happened to an individual internally. It portrays that conversion has taken place in a person. And this outward cleansing that we experience in the act of baptism is again, it's a symbol of what takes place in the internal cleansing through the gospel. And so as a, just a side note, if you remember last week, we had a, a, an awesome opportunity to be able to hear a message on conversion and then also watch a baptism take place in between the services. I mean, what a beautiful combination that we got to witness last week if you were there for that. Now, uh, that's, that's where we've been so far. I, I want us to, to look at what we're looking at today. Notice another phrase here. Notice how he says that uh, the church this has to go and make disciples. They are also called to teach. Teach and observe everything that Christ has commanded. You know, the church is, is not designed to merely make disciples disciples or to make converts. The church is designed to intentionally invest in the spiritual health of its members from cradle to grave. And this means that we have to teach, we have to recognize that the deed is not done once the nest has been dug and the eggs have been laid. No, we need to help the, the, the children in our church, the spiritual infants, face a reality uh, in this world. We need to help our, our people thrive in our mission. So how do we do all of this? How, how do we disciple? What are some of the key components of discipling? The, those are some of the questions that we wanna try to address this morning. And so to give us a roadmap, like I said, we're not gonna be focusing anymore on, on Matthew 28 as we move forward. Now we're gonna transition to 1 Timothy 4. And this is really gonna set the stage for the rest of our morning. So turn with me there, 1 Timothy 4. I think what we have here is a really helpful grid for understanding how to approach discipling in the context of the church. 1 Timothy 4, verse 16, here's what we read. Very last verse of the chapter. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing you will save both yourself and your hearers. Now, Phil and I this week, we were talking about the fact that 
the idea of discipleship in the local church is a really big topic. I mean, this could have been its own series in itself, and yet we're making it a, a focus for one morning in this series on the local church. And so even though there's a lot to say on this idea, we're gonna try to boil it down to the two key components that we see here in 1 Timothy 4.16. This will guide the rest of our time. Notice what he tells Timothy, what Paul tells Timothy. He says, keep a close watch, and he gives him two components here. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. And this, this, this dual approach that, that Paul is commissioning Timothy with is going to help Timothy save both himself and his hearers. Timothy must keep an eye on the teaching. He has been taught, he knows the word of God, he knows how to be uh, faithful to the word of God, but at the same time, Paul is saying, I, I know you know this, but you need to stay laser focused on this task. In the same way, Timothy is told to keep an eye on his life. He's had godly examples in his life who have shown him what it looks like. These models, like his grandmother, his, his mother, Paul, Silas, these different missionaries that he's partnered with. He has seen what it looks like to apply the gospel to life and live a life in submission to God. And so, Paul wants him to stay focused on this. He's been taught the truths of the Bible. He has been instructed in how to live a life for God. He's been shown what a life for God looks like. But he needs to remain focused on the task. And he'll do this for his spiritual good, and notice that other phrase, so that his hearers might also be saved. So if we boil discipleship down, again, this is somewhat overly simplistic, but as we boil discipleship down, let's focus on these two components. This is a helpful grid for approaching any sort of discipleship relationship. We wanna know God, we wanna know who he is, we wanna help others to know God and who God is. And then at the same time, we wanna help, uh, first off, we wanna focus on ourselves living a life to God, seeking to honor him in everything that we do, and then we wanna help other people do the very same thing in their own lives. So let's look at both of these ideas separately. First off, let's look at discipling done through teaching. Right, discipling must include a teaching component. If we are going to make disciples, we must teach the truths of scripture. We must teach doctrine. We must teach the key components of the gospel, its ramifications and its implications. Notice what Paul tells Timothy here. He says, if you want your hearers to experience salvation, you must keep a close eye on, on the teaching, which is kind of an interesting way to explain this, right? He says, keep your eye on the teaching. That article there, the, is actually important because what this is signifying to us is that Paul has a specific list of doctrinal truths in mind that was being disseminated through the church. Right, so he's teaching these key doctrines, these key truths about scripture, and he wants these ideas disseminated through the church. I think we all understand this, right? We, we all get the fact that there are some aspects uh, of teaching in the Bible where we, we may not agree on every little jot and tittle. But at the same time, at the same time, we all know that there are key doctrinal truths about the gospel. If we have them wrong, we are not true Christians. Right? These are of first importance. And so we cannot miss this. I think that's what Paul has in mind here. It's the essential elements of the, of the doctrines of the gospel that ought to go throughout the churches. He's saying make sure you have a clear eye on these realities of scripture. We need to know the gospel. As John Calvin helpfully points out in Institutes of a Christian Religion, he says proper doctrine or a proper understanding of the gospel must consist of both an accurate view of God and an accurate view of ourselves. If we mix either of these components up, accurate view of God or an accurate view of ourselves, then we will miss the gospel. That's what Paul is getting at. He wants Timothy to disseminate a proper understanding of who God is and who we are in light of God. That's the only way we're gonna have an accurate understanding of the gospel. Think about it, we need to know that we serve a God who is the creator and the sustainer of everything. 
we need to be well aware of the fact that he is a God of unmatched glory, he has no rivals, and any dissenter will be put out of his presence. He demands our absolute allegiance, which gives us some insight into ourselves. This helps us understand who we are as a people and what our responsibilities and our duties are. We are to live in submission to God. We are creatures created by God. And so we owe God the entirety of our lives. Because he demands absolute obedience and allegiance, we are called to do so. Which puts all of us in a difficult situation. Because when we're honest with ourselves, when we, when we really engage with our own hearts, we know that, that that is true of none of us. None of us give our absolute allegiance to God. None of us live for Christ in every way, shape, or form. We all need help. Our rebellion has put us at odds with God. So in comes Christ. Right? This is the teaching that we need to be aware of. In comes Christ who, who mends this, this gap, this enmity between us and God. He comes to us, bringing us the perfection that we could not attain on our, on our own, living in perfect communion with God, upholding the righteous standard that God has provided in every way, shape, or form. And then Christ comes to us and he says, I am gonna give you this righteousness. I'm gonna give you the perfection that you need to stand in God's presence. So he pays for our sins and his death. He grants us the hope of heaven in his resurrection. And he says, You are now God's. That is what Paul is talking about. He wants us to have a crystal clear understanding of the essential elements of the gospel that we have been handed through the scriptures. We need to understand that salvation comes only by the means of Christ's accomplishments and only through the mechanism of faith. We bring nothing to the table and yet we receive everything in return. As we see, or as we just sang, rather, our only hope is Christ, right? Yet not I, but Christ in me. The Heidelberg Catechism, or Confession, points out that our only hope in life and death, it's not found in ourselves, it's found in Jesus. So if we want to be effective disciple makers, if we want to be effective disciples ourselves, we need to have a clear understanding of these doctrinal truths. This is why in 2 Timothy, uh, we see that Paul keeps reminding Timothy of these same things. So turn with me a couple pages to the right to Timothy, uh, or 2 Timothy. Look at chapter 1, verse 13. 1 Timothy, or 2 Timothy, sorry, 1, 13. Simple verse Notice what he says. Follow the pattern of sound words that you have heard from me and the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Right, there's a pattern of words, a, a pattern of doctrines, a pattern of truth, this teaching that has been passed on to Timothy. And he's saying, keep a close eye on this. Follow this same pattern of words. Brothers and sisters, we have the same commission today. We have been handed Paul's words through the scriptures. We have Jesus' words in the scriptures. And so we have the same calling. We have to keep a close eye on the things that have been handed down to us. We are to follow the same pattern of sound words that we have here in the scriptures right before us. You know, as we continue in 2 Timothy, what we find in the very next chapter, chapter two, is that we're not only called to learn these doctrinal truths for ourselves and kind of hold them in, we are then to disseminate them to the church. Look at chapter two, verses one and two. Uh, Phil read this earlier. You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. The pattern is clearly laid out. We learn doctrine, we pass it on to others. Or to put it another way, we, we understand the truths of the gospel and all of its implications and all of its ramifications and then we help others to understand for themselves. And notice what Paul says here. He says, look for faithful men, right? Look for a specific type of person. 
Look for the faithful, those individuals who, who need training, who can then disseminate these truths to others. Look for, for that lion cub who will one day take responsibility for the pack, teach him, raise him up so that he might be able to train others. You have four generations listed in verse two. Paul to Timothy, Timothy to these faithful men, these faithful men to others who will do likewise. Right? There's, there's a... a a pathway here, right? There's a lineage, a spiritual lineage that, that Paul wants to set up for the church. We cannot miss the fact that if effective discipleship is going to take place in the church, then this is an all-in game plan. Every hand on deck, all of us need to be involved in this, every single one of us. This is not something that can be done solely by the pastors, This is not something reserved for the preacher on a Sunday morning. Discipling takes place at every level, from the pastors and from the church members to one another. The pastor preaches, the members of the church hear the message, they reflect on the message and then they they disseminate it. They start talking to one another, encouraging one another. Many of our small groups are actually set up this way intentionally with these uh, small groups that are geared towards sermon reflection. And so we're trying to ponder on what has been taught. We're trying to allow the, the preacher to encourage us. And then we're trying to encourage one another with the same truths. Colin Hansen, he helpfully draws uh, this connection between preaching and a spider web. It's as though the preacher stands at the middle of the web and sends out strands that connect to every individual member in the church. And then those members start to build the infrastructure, the rings, right? They're connecting the message to one another. It's as though the the, the preaching of the word is just one part of the, the construction of this web. The members then are encouraging one another, which does point out to uh, the fact that gathering in person is essential for the health and vitality of the church. Right? We gather here, we come early, we stay late, we have conversations, we're encouraging one another, we're pointing out different aspects of the message that hit home for us in hopes that it will hit home for others. This is all part of the discipleship process in the local church. Think about it, the preacher offers one message to hundreds of people and then the hundreds of people are called to communicate to one another. As Ephesians 4 points out, God has given the church pastors to equip the saints or the members of the church for the work of ministry. It's not left up to one person. It's not left up to a team of people. It's left up to every single individual who makes up the body, makes up the congregation. Again, this is in every single member of the church. Bought in mentality. All hands on deck. And you know, this wasn't something reserved for Paul. Jesus had this mindset too. He too had this all-in mindset. Let me go to to my disciples, let me build them up and let me encourage them to go and do likewise, which for me is, is kind of surprising because you have individuals like Peter and James and John. James and John are these arrogant guys. Peter's always got his foot in his mouth. You, it would be totally understandable if Jesus looked at them and said, leave the discipling up to me, don't say anything. I just need you to like do some tasks for me, like go get bread or something. Right, that's, that's all you're commissioned to do. Get the bread, come back, let's feed people, but don't talk, just stop, right? That's, that would kind of be somewhat understandable, and yet that's not how Jesus teaches his disciples. Remember back a, a few months now, over the summer, we did a series through Matthew 10. Uh, in Matthew 10, what we see is Jesus is actually preparing his disciples, he's teaching them, he's instructing them. He's giving them doctrinal truths that will help them in their ministry. And then what he's doing is he's commissioning them. Go and tell the surrounding cities, the surrounding towns, that the kingdom of God is at hand. He's instructing them. In Luke 10, which is a very similar passage to Matthew 10, there's a a really interesting detail that Matthew doesn't have recorded in his account. And it's the fact that Luke points out that eventually the disciples leave, they go into the surrounding towns, they start ministering to the people in these cities, and then they come back, and they start, you know, they're joyful, they're telling Jesus about what they heard, or what they experienced, and then Jesus is coaching them. He starts teaching them again. There's like this cycle going on, 
Right? He prepares them, he teaches them, he trains them, he sends them out, he gives them an experience, go on mission, and then they come back and they're talking to him and he's giving them more training, he's helping them, correcting any misconceptions that they might have. Right? This is an effective way to do discipling in the church. We offer knowledge, we provide experiences, and then we offer feedback, coaching afterwards, after the deed is done. In, in Kairos, our college group, we have this sort of thing happen all the time, right? People come and they're saying, you know, I, I, I'm in this relationship with someone. I, I have a friend that I'm, I'm sharing the gospel with him and he's asking me questions and I'm not exactly sure how to answer these questions. And so we're talking about it, right? There's, there's actually a conversation going on. There's training happening, there's teaching. Then they go out there talking to that friend again, sharing the gospel with them, maybe answering questions, and then they're coming back and we're following up on it, right? There's just a cycle happening. There's knowledge offered, uh, an experience offered, and then feedback offered, right? You go back and forth. That's the way disciples are made, through this cycle. Now, if we want our discipleship relationships to prosper, we need to influence others with this doctrinal truth, right? We need to always be reminding one another of the truths we find in the gospel. Now there's so much more we could say, but let me just really hunker down on this by, by going to Acts 19. In Acts 19, we have a beautiful example of Paul going into a town, teaching a, a, this, this city, to many members of the city, about the doctrinal truths of scripture. And he is committed to this task. We'll see just how committed he is. Acts 19, beginning in verse eight. And he entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way, before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years, so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. So why bring this up? I bring this up to direct your attention to the fact that Paul was committed to this task of teaching, informing, instructing, offering doctrinal truths, giving a clear explanation of the gospel. Notice what he does there. He goes into a synagogue and for three months, day after day after day, he's teaching about what? The kingdom of God. He wants them to know Jesus, who he is, what he has accomplished. And then what happens? A bunch of the people in the synagogue eventually get fed up with him and they say, get out of here. So he's like, okay, I'm gonna take my disciples, I'm gonna go and rent a hall or whatever. I don't know who Tyrannus was, but apparently he had this hall. And he goes over to his hall and he says, come on disciples, let's go over here. And then for two more years, what does he do? He keeps teaching. He keeps on teaching. I know sometimes in the church we're like, you know, I'm just the practical kind of guy. I get that, we are all kind of created differently and it's okay to have different emphases. Maybe you wanna emphasize the practical stuff. But you cannot lose sight of the fact that doctrine is the, the root from which our practical stuff flows. Right? The practical stuff is the fruit on the tree. The doctrine is the, the roots in the ground. And so unless we have a proper understanding of what's happening beneath the surface, at, 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 the truth level, the fruit on the tree is gonna be spoiled. The practical stuff isn't gonna matter if the person doesn't know Christ and who he is in the first place. For three months, every single day, until he gets kicked out, two more years, I'm gonna keep teaching. And as a result, the entire area of Asia, the whole region, has heard the gospel. I don't know exactly how that worked. I don't think every single individual within the entire region came to hear Paul. What probably happened was as Paul taught, his disciples went out and they began to do likewise. Just like we saw in 2 Timothy 2. In our discipling relationships, we teach truth. But with all of that said, we do need to get practical. Right? We do need to get into the nitty gritty of life. We do need to get into the nuances of life. As we will see, that's what uh, Paul wanted as well. That's what Jesus wants as well. We need our hearers to understand that the gospel actually affects the fruit on the tree. We need to focus on life. 
Back to 1 Timothy 4. 1 Timothy 4, remember? He gives him two instructions here. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. And so now let's, let's focus on this second idea here, the, the doctrines of life. How do we live for God? As followers of Jesus, we actually need help in both of these areas. We need to know God and then we know how to live for God. So, with that said, <clears throat> we need to recognize that this too is uh, something that requires all of us to partake in. This sort of discipling, the life on life stuff, requires that all of us are bought in. Every one of us need to help in this. We need to assist in this. Think about it. As a preacher teaches scripture, he brings that lesson to bear on life. Right? There, there is a sense in which the pastor is seeking to help you understand how the truths of the gospel impact the way you live. And yet, there are limitations to this because you have one individual speaking to hundreds of people at the very same time, especially in our church. There's no way, there's no possible way for the pastor to be able to look at every single individual and tell them exactly how to handle that specific situation with that one you know, coworker that really gets under your skin in this particular way when they do this specific, specific thing. Right? The pastor can't give you, you know, life instructions for every single detail of life that you happen to be in. But you know where those sorts of relationships can start to happen? In a one-on-one -on -one level when we have this all-in mentality. Similarly, it's important to recognize that a, a pastor is also limited in relational bandwidth. So if you wanna do the more like one-on-one -on -one stuff, it's not as though the pastor can do all of that on his own. Even in Golden Hills where we are blessed with a whole team of pastors, again, by your generosity and God's grace, we still can't do that here, right? We're, the pastors are outnumbered. And this means every member of the church needs to partake in this, right? This is where we see the significance of this all-in nature of discipling. One person can't do this on his own. Sermons as, as helpful as they are cannot do all of this on their own. We can't speak to the nuances of life in the broad context like this. You need the one-on-one -on -one relationships. You need the small group type of relationships. The one-on-few, the one-on-one. -on -one. So how then do we do this type of discipling? How can we help others bring the truths of the gospel to bear on the nuances of life? What, like, what's the strategy? At Golden Hills, we've been recently going through our values and trying to understand what our values as a church really are. And one of the things that has come up is the idea of hospitality. We, a couple of years back, you probably remember this, we did a whole conference on hospitality. We had a, a, a whole series on hospitality. And the reason is, is because we recognize that biblical hospitality goes hand in glove with the idea of life on life discipling. It, it goes hand in hand. And so that means every single member of the church, the more hospitable we are, the better our church will be able to experience discipleship. As I personally think through the idea of hospitality, I, th I think there are two words that can really help us understand how this affects discipling. It's the word intentional and the, and the word uh, inclusivity. Right? As we are intentional and inclusive with others, that's where hospitality can really foster discipling relationships. Uh, when, when my wife and uh, Amanda and I were in college, we had a couple in our church uh, he was an elder, his name was Walt, and her name was Pam. Very generous couple, and a very hospitable couple. During one season of our time there, Walt and Pam had a room open in their house, which was like a very rare thing, because they typically always had guests living with them uh, throughout their, <laughs> the, the year. And so there was this season where they had an open room and Amanda got to live with them. And what her and I got to experience during that time, because we were engaged at the time, we just got to experience the fruit of their ministry, their, the fruit of their hospitality. And we got to experience a, a different level of discipling through that relationship that we never would have gained if we weren't entering into their home on a regular basis. They were the type of people who were always inclusive, bringing people in. Right? They were bringing people into their midst, into their life. Hey, do you need a car? I, I got a car for you. Do, you. do you wanna come over for dinner? Come over for dinner. Do you wanna go get coffee? Let's go get coffee. 
right? They had that sort of mindset. Inclusive, let me just bring people along. Let me bring other people into this equation. But with their inclusivity, they partnered it with an intentionality. Bring people in and then have meaningful conversations. Right? They're not just bringing people in to watch you know, Gonzaga basketball. I lived in Spokane, Washington at the time. Gonzaga is really popular there. So it wasn't like we were just watching Gonzaga basketball and like shooting the breeze. You might do that every once in a while, but what you were often doing is having meaningful conversations, purposeful conversations. Right? Walt's helping me change the brakes and he's teaching me and helping me understand just how to be patient with younger guys who are kind of nimrods like myself, right? I'm just kind of witnessing this. I'm like, man, I need to learn from this guy. When you are hospitable in this sort of way, inclusive and intentional, discipling can take place at a one-on-one level, in a, in a small group level, right? That's the sort of thing we ought to grow in as a church. And I wanna be clear that this isn't just something that I've learned from experience or something. It's not something that I've just benefited from and so I'm like, hey, this is a great thing for us to practice because I've benefited from it. I want you to see that this is biblical. This is something we see all throughout the scriptures, especially uh, during Paul's time with the Corinthians. So turn with me to 1 Corinthians. We'll see a couple of passages here. 1 Corinthians 4, be helpful for you to see this. Very simple passages, but I don't want you to miss it. 1 Corinthians 4, verse 16 Here's what we read, 1 Corinthians 4, 16. I urge you then, be imitators of me. That's it, that's it, be imitators of me. Paul is looking at his, the, this church and he's saying, you saw the way I lived, imitate what you saw in me. Turn a couple pages to the right, chapter 11. Verse one, so 1 Corinthians 11, one, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Again, he's looking at this church and he's saying, remember the way that I lived among you? Follow my example, follow my lead. Imitation plays a major role in the life of discipling. Imitate me as I imitate Christ. I mean, what a statement. What a statement for Paul to make. Look at the way that I live my life. I I trust that it will help you as you're trying to live a life for Christ. So how is that gonna happen? How can you actually look at someone and say, hey, you see the way I'm living, follow me? You need to be hospitable. You need to bring other people into your life so that they can see the way that you live. If others aren't brought into your own situations and your own context, they're not gonna be able to see the way that you live and they're not gonna be able to follow you as you follow Christ because they're not gonna know how to follow you. In order for us to apply this verse, we need to be a hospitable people, an inclusive people, bringing other people into our lives. You know, another prime example of this is Acts 18. I'm gonna do the hard work of telling you to turn there as well. Acts 18, sorry about that. A couple pages to the left. I think uh, this is another passage I just want you to see for yourselves because this is super helpful, great stuff here. Acts 18, verses one through four. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had uh, commanded all the Jews to leave Rome, and he went to see them. And because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and he worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried persuading, uh, tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. So here what we find is that Paul is a tent maker. When he shows up in Corinth, he finds Priscilla and Aquila, this couple, they've recently been exiled from, from Rome, uh, because they're Jews, probably because he's, he's kind of hearing, you know, about some of the rumblings amongst the Jews, right? There's this Christian sect, and so he, he just dismisses them all from Italy. So they come to Corinth, and Paul meets them, and he says, hey, let's do this tent-making thing together. So they start to, to make tents with one another. 
And what we see is that they're living life together, they're spending time together, and what is clear is that Paul is teaching them, as we'll see later in chapter 18. I just want to point this out because this life-on-life discipling doesn't have to take place by like going to a coffee shop at 6 a.m. and going through a specific booklet or something like that. It can happen that way. Every Monday at 6 a.m. you go through a book together. That's a great way to disciple someone, but it's not the only way. Paul shows up in Corinth and he says, let's get you know, some dirty hands together, let's work together, let's build some tents together, and discipling is happening throughout that. How do I know that discipleship is taking place while they're working together? Go to the end of the chapter. Acts 18, verses 24 through 26. Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures, He had been instructed in the way of the Lord and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and he taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began uh, to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. Same two individuals that Paul just spent all this time working with. They're in a new city. They're not in Corinth anymore. Now they're in Ephesus. And along comes Apollos. Apollos is apparently a really smart guy. He's from Alexandria. Alexandria kind of prided itself in having this intellectual community there. He comes. He's a, he's a very effective speaker, apparently. But what Priscilla and Aquila notice is that he does not know uh, the ways of Jesus accurately enough. And so they pull him aside. They begin to teach him. Right, so the same two people that Paul has just spent time with, training them, Now they're going out on their own, right? Pass these things to faithful men who will be able to do likewise. That's what we see here. We see the fruit of Paul's ministry. Now we get to see the result of all that discipling that was done while they were working on tents together. Apollos, this remarkable speaker, is willing to hear from Priscilla and Aquila because they know a thing or two after spending all this time with Paul. Now, we've spent a lot of time focusing on Paul and his relationship with Priscilla and Aquila and some of these different things with with the Corinthians. Now, I want us to see that this was not only Paul, this was also the way Jesus approached discipling. This is the way that we are to look at Jesus, right? Jesus offered for us an example of what it looks like to live a life dedicated to the glory of God. Philippians 2 tells us that much. Philippians 2, verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and uh, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So the passage here is clear. What we're seeing right here is that we are to imitate the example that we have from Jesus. He was humble. He did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped. He humbled himself. He he served others. And Paul is saying, look at Jesus' example and follow him. Now, I want to point out that Jesus' mission in coming to earth was not merely to offer an example to his disciples. Let Let me show you what it looks like to live a life for Christ. That was part of what he did, but that wasn't the crux of it. The crux of what Jesus came to do was make us into a people who are actually capable of following his example. It doesn't do much good if Jesus comes and pulls together this group of disciples who are incapable of following him in any way, shape, or form. This brings us back to what we saw last week. Jesus came to make people into new people. He came to fulfill Ezekiel 36, to give people his spirit, to cleanse them with a washing of water, to make true converts, right? That is what Christ came to do after he lives this perfect life. He then dies in our place. He then rises from the dead. He ascends to the right hand of the Father on high and he sends us his spirit so that we might be able to be like him. That's what Christ has done for us. 
And so now, on the back end of his work in the death and resurrection and ascension of the Son of God, now we can look to him as an example and we can actually follow his example. He's made us capable of such. He's given us his spirit. He's given us the new life that we need in order to follow him as we should. Now, Paul can confidently say, look to Jesus. He was humble. He served others. Let us be like him. You see, we have an example in the person of Jesus. We have an example in the person of Paul. We have examples of godly individuals all around us. And because we've been empowered by God's spirit, we can now live out uh, the, the calling that we have from God, follow Christ effectively. All of that are, is ours in Christ Jesus. And so I hope you're catching a vision for all of this. First Timothy one, uh, chapter four, Paul's telling Timothy, keep a close eye on your life and on the doctrine, on the teaching. And so as followers of Jesus, let's do the same thing. Let's keep a close eye on ourselves. Let's keep a close eye on the teaching and then let's help others do the very same thing in their own lives. I know this seems really simple, but that's the path laid for us in the scriptures. We pay a close attention to ourselves, we pay a close attention to the teaching, and then we help others do the same. Imagine, imagine if every member at Golden Hills were able to say what Paul said, follow me as I follow Christ. I mean, that's kind of one of those statements that kind of catches us off guard. Can he really say that? Imagine if every one of us were able to say the same thing. Follow me as I follow Christ. Imagine if every single member at Golden Hills felt competent and, and, and sufficient to speak the gospel to your neighbors with accuracy. Imagine if every single member here had the, the ability to train up young leaders in the church who might be able to take charge of the next generation of churchgoers. That is something that is possible in the church and it's possible when we adopt this mindset that all of us are in on this discipleship process, all of us need to be bought in and we, when we are bought in, we will see the spiritual climate of our church grow, we will see the spiritual climate of our families grow and that will have an, a, massive, a massive effect on our communities, on our neighbors, even on the globe and in our, in our missional efforts. That is the promise that we have in the gospel and that is a promise that is ours when we practice the work of discipling as a church. Let's pray. God, we do need your help. This is not something we can attain by ourselves. We need your help because we know that we have a responsibility that is far greater than anything we have the capacity to fulfill. But we want your glory to be made known. We want your kingdom to grow. We want you to sustain your church and we pray that you would sustain your church even through the means of individuals like us. Broken people, incompetent at times. But we pray that you would make us sufficient through your grace and by the power of your spirit. We pray all of this in Christ's name.